You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. I want to put the title of my message up. Triumphal. Uh, this comes from the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as we look into it a moment, we're going to talk about exalting Christ with all our lives. Let me get my outline in my iPad. Because obviously Jesus was, he came demonstrating to us life. He came to demonstrate by example. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And we have to know some important things about his life and what we do with it. In introduction, John chapter 12, verse 32 says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And Jesus was saying this in the context of his crucifixion, when he was nailed to the cross. And he was saying that the image of him on the cross and what he did was something that was designed to draw all the people to him. And it's unique in what he did for us, his sacrifice, because we see a lot of different deities. We see a lot of different religious systems. And the story is not quite the same. The story of sacrifice, the story of giving. I heard one girl say it one time after we had given her a basket full of goods and we just wanted to bless her in the name of Jesus. And she had been in India in, uh, in the slums. She received it and she said, who is this Jesus that gives to me, all my gods have taken from me. And I remember hearing her because she's, she talked about having to sacrifice what she had to give, what she had to do. And she was in a miserable state, a very young girl with multiple children that she was caring for with no one to help her. And we were just doing this thing called Buckets of Love. Barbara had organized these uh, baskets or buckets full of staples to give out to the people like lentils and sugar and oil and such and some products for their home as well as a, uh, a useful bucket that we could use. And that girl said that and it really, really touched me to think that it's true that our God loved the world so much he gave his own son Jesus and he was sent to earth to die for us. And Jesus lived three and a half years teaching and preaching the kingdom all to come up to the culmination of being lifted up on the cross. And he said, I must be lifted up because when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And sometimes it is hard for us to exalt Jesus in our life. And really the very basis of our salvation and future depends upon our ability to confess Jesus or lift him up. We know salvation comes when we believe in our heart, confess with our mouth. So we lift him up. When we speak his name, we lift him up when we tell people about him, and salvation is that. In fact, when we don't do it, it says it is a form of denial. If we deny him before men, he'll deny us before the Father. And Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our intercessor. He's the only one that can plead our cause to the Father, and he's the only one that can communicate with the Father on our behalf. And he's the only way that we can make it, but it depends upon us lifting him up here on this planet before all men. And when we do that, he will draw people to us as his ministers. And so we do this in many different ways. We lift up Jesus by the way we live. Uh, we can lift up Jesus. In fact, scripture says in him, we live and move and have our being. 
meaning that all aspects of your life, all areas of your living can serve to bring glory to Jesus, glory to the Father, and cause people to come to know him. It doesn't necessarily have to be you standing behind a pulpit and preaching, but it can be in your job, it can be in your scholastic career, in the way that you study, in the way that you do all things. I believe that we can emulate the nature of Christ, certainly, most importantly, in relationships, and the way that we love people, in the way that we care for people. And so we lift Jesus up in the way that we live. We're living, we're living testimony. I heard someone once say, and I believe it, that we may be the only Bible someone ever has a chance to read. So we lift him up by speaking the wisdom of his word. We speak scriptures. I often find myself talking with people who are not believers as we are believers, but they are asking for help in life. So I begin by quoting many scriptures. I don't say the chapter and verse instantly. I don't say, well, you know, Romans chapter 9 or 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, I just quote it as we quote wise words or even colloquial expressions. Often we say things that are expressions. Uh, we have a lot of strange ones in the U.S., but I think some of you know, you know, you cannot cry over spilt milk. It's all water under the bridge. Uh, we say that he's uh, wet behind the ears, meaning that someone is not quite experienced in life. I can go on and on. I like colloquial expressions. Some of them do not translate at all into other languages, which I found out the hard way. The first time I said in Mexico that it was raining cats and dogs, I got met with some strange looks because that's an expression they simply don't have. They don't say that it rains cats and dogs. So these expressions we use, and if we also then bring scripture into our lives, the word of God, and we are constantly quoting it and speaking it to the people around us, its wisdom will permeate their mind, their emotions. And I often do that as kind of a forerunner to my presentation of the gospel. I speak the wisdom of God, because uh, it's, of course, much wiser than the wisdom of men. And the wisdom of men is foolishness next to the wisdom of God. So this is another way that we are lifting up Jesus, that we are holding him high because he's the word. If we lift up the word and we speak the word, we are exalting Jesus before all people. And so in this message, I really started thinking about this. And I was examining the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I've identified seven things that show us what it means to exalt the Lord and how it affects us in our life. And so there's a price to pay, of course, for this. And, and I, I know you get tired of me constantly preaching messages that tell you that it's not easy. But um, I can't preach anything else because the, the gospel life is not an easy life. There's always going to be difficulties and trials. The early church said only through much tribulation can we enter the kingdom of God. And so along those lines, uh, as I was looking at this, this story... I identified these seven stages of exalting Jesus. These are things that we go through, and I hope that it will be mean something. Just a devotional look at Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus had already been on the earth at this point for three and a half years. This is the very end. In fact, this story is what traditionally is known as Palm Sunday, or the Sunday preceding the the time that Jesus is um, com coming to his, his resurrection or the time he's his last minute and he knows that his time is limited. Before this time came, Jesus was very, very careful. 
He started preaching and teaching to everyone. They heard the truth, but after a while, his, his work started causing more and more trouble for him. So he started asking people when he healed them to keep their mouth shut. And he did this so that if someone got healed, they wanted to testify. He said, look, just tell the priest so that you can be reinstated back into society. But don't, don't tell anyone. Because Jesus found the more that he did and the more that he lived the glory of the Father, the more trouble was coming to his life. And it's the same for us. The more that we live Jesus on this planet, the more trouble there will be in our lives. And this is why it seems to be a common trend for people who believe in Jesus to live less visually Jesus before people because they, even if they don't realize they're doing it, they can avoid certain difficulties. Maybe they want to fit into certain circles. Maybe they want to keep certain friends or whatever the case. They tend to cut back or curtail the amount of gospel that's coming out of them. And I, I agree that there's times we need to use wisdom and we should pace ourselves in some relationships. And we know we don't come right out the gate bombarding people with fire and brimstone messages. Although I think there are some people that could really benefit from a fire and brimstone message and maybe they're in the position to need that. But we are wise and we are fishers of men. He that winneth souls is wise. But Jesus was pretty vocal. Uh, he started out with a message that caused people to want to throw him off of a cliff. From the very beginning, he declared the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His first statement to people in crowds when he preached was, all right, you need to change the way that you are because now God's kingdom is available to everyone. Everyone can go to it. Everyone can come into the kingdom. But it's going to require that you change some things. Well, as he ministered and did these things for three and a half years, he was become very popular. It got so bad that he had to hide. He was sneaking incognito. He was keeping on the peripheral regions of the cities because it says he could no longer go in openly, which means that he might have gone in, but he would not go in openly. After a while, actually, he was sending his disciples to do the work for him because he was just a superstar. It would be like someone in media, an actor or a musical star, and if they get seen, the mobs will attack them. Well, Jesus become like that. So he started staying in the lonely places, the Bible said, and people were going to him. And there he could manage those crowds better. And they also began to want to destroy Jesus because he was messing up their religion. And religion was the source of political power, too. So the Jews controlled everything with their influence, with fear, and also um, their system was corrupt. And Jesus challenged that, and all the people started following Jesus. Well, after a while, Jesus decided that it was no longer time to hide, but let me just put all my chips on the table and fulfill. I believe this is because he knew that the Father was bringing the culmination of his life to the moment that he would be lifted up, as we saw the scripture. And that was for that reason that he came. And so he decided to do one really irritating miracle. In fact, this was a very strategic move because the miracle that he did was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Do you know that expression? 
So it's the, the last straw. This is the time that Jesus knew full well that if he does this miracle openly, that they will put a death sentence on him and they will destroy him. But Jesus knew by the Father, and that's why he said it, it, the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the Pharisees and the leaders, and they're going to crucify him. And he will die, but on the third day he will rise again. So Jesus was fully cognizant of his purpose in dying on the cross. And so when it was time, he just said, I'm just going to do this amazing miracle. Now, he strategized it with the help of the Father, obviously. He was away from Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. They were in another region ministering. And Lazarus, who was a very good friend of Jesus, he was close to the family, fell ill, and word was sent all the way to where Jesus was ministering, saying that Lazarus is ill, and his sisters are asking for you to come. But he decided to remain further. In fact, he waited so long that he gave enough time for Lazarus to die and then enough more time for Lazarus to remain in the tomb for four days. And the reason he did this was because in Jewish culture, they actually believed that within three days, someone could rise. It was kind of a doctrine they had that, that coming back to life was possible, although very rare, but the limit was four. Nobody would come back to life four days later. And so Jesus specifically wanted to put their rules to shame and defy their logic. So he, that's why he waited four days. So in that time that he did that, uh, he created an atmosphere of absolute miraculousness. So that when Lazarus was raised from the dead, we know the story, he finally went. Mary uh, and Martha met him, spoke to him, and said, if you'd been here, you would have been able to pray for Lazarus, and he would have been healed. But now I know that uh, anything is possible. And Jesus said, oh, he's going to rise from the dead. Because Jesus already had in mind, this is my plan. I'm coming to do this. I've specifically waited for this. And that's what he even told his disciples when he said, well, he's sleeping. I said, well, if he's sleeping, he'll be okay. He said, no, he's dead. And I've waited for your sake, he said, speaking to humanity. I've waited this long on purpose so that you can learn something. So he went and, and she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus said in that famous passage, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he's dead, yet will he live. And she believed and accepted and went with Jesus. And Jesus saw the people. He saw the mourning. And Jesus mourned too. In fact, in that passage, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. So Jesus cried but then moved inside, moved with deep compassion, a very specific Greek word, which means from the inside, something turning and moving. Jesus did it five times. That word occurs with Jesus in the book of Matthew. Uh, the name of my ministry in America, um, the president of moved with compassion. That word moved with compassion in the Greek is one word in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And it is related to the word spleen, and what it means is pain on the inside that twists you. And so that word, splatnaktomai, that, that word means a, a twisting of your gut. Have you ever felt something so deeply you hold your stomach and you bow over and it's almost painful? Uh, that's exactly what it's meant to um, feel. That feeling is from the depths of your heart. When that happens, it manifests power. So Jesus, looking at the tomb, he felt that. And he even said, roll the stone away. 
And they said, well, by this time, he's really going to stink. It's been four days. And they said, just roll the stone away. Just do what I tell you. They rolled the stone away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And there comes Lazarus hopping out like a mummy out of the tomb. Breeze. Now, this, of course, was an amazing sight. And so many people believe there were many, many Jews that were kind of on the fence about Jesus as Messiah, that that was the proof positive that he was Messiah and they believed in him. Now his fame is blowing up. Uh, everybody is, is there. And that's really the first thing in the story here that we, we're picking up in John chapter 12, verse nine. Number one, we decide to exalt Jesus. And what I mean by this, it says in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So here, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was that specific and exact move to bring about the end of his own life. In other words, Jesus knew that by doing this open act, by exposing the Father and his power, that he would cause his own demise. So this is my first point that we decide. It's a decision we have to make, uh, and we have to make it wisely. And he made this choice at the right time, calculating so that everything would coincide with the fact that he had to be the Lamb of God, which meant the Passover. He's timing this by the hour coming up to that moment. So this was a brilliant strategy. And really, we make a decision, as I see in this, we make a decision to exalt Christ. It's not an instinct. Just because someone comes to know Jesus or lives for God does not mean they are instinctually going to tell everybody about it. And there are some people that are waiting for that kind of a movement that, you know, as I learn and grow, eventually I am going to be very vocal about this, but it doesn't happen that way. It is a choice that we make, not necessarily by impulse of instinct or by motivation of spirit, but by obedience to God's word. And it says, go into all the world, preach the gospel. In other words, make public. It said, nobody takes this light and hides it under a bed or puts it under a bushel basket. No, on the contrary, we put it in the open so that everyone can enjoy the light. We put it on a candlestick, on a lampstand, nice and bright so that all can see it. But that's a decision we have to make. Just like Jesus is knowingly making a decision to cause horrible things to happen to himself in the fulfillment of his destiny, I believe that we have to make such decisions. That as we move toward a deeper and deeper maturity in Christ, we will have to make some hard choices about putting ourselves in a place where things like this can happen. So we make the decision. It's not an instinct. In fact, it's our instinct to do exactly the opposite. Our instinct, as I've been talking a lot, is self-preservation. These messages keep coming to me, and I'm wondering if God's about to martyr me or something, because... All these messages are kind of along the same lines, which I don't have a problem with. I mean, if you, I, I, I'd be fine, but I still would like to raise my daughter because she's 12 and I have grandchildren, but they have parents and, you know, my wife is okay. Uh, she's a strong woman, but gosh, all my messages have been leading to the same thing. And I am willing, I make a decision to exalt Jesus. I want to lift up Jesus in my life and I want everyone to see it. If he be lifted up, he will draw all men to him. 
In fact, that's what the song is we used to sing when I was 17 years of age. I got saved, um, and we sang a song. He said, if I be lifted up above this world, I will draw men unto me. We used to sing it in church all the time. And it was one of my favorite songs. And I made choices as a 17-year-old to go out into the streets of New Orleans, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, because I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And I wore this cheesy little knit tie. And I, and I had this greasy little poem full of gospel tracks. And I was so corny about it, too. I was so I was that hallelujah guy that meets people on the streets that nobody wants to talk to because he looks like maybe a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. I mean, I looked like that. I, I just, maybe in my naivete about how to approach people and do things, I, I do not regret my early decisions to just go tell people about Jesus. And I remember when I was in the home church, our church did not have a an evangelistic program. And I went to visit another church. That was a good church. I'm not criticizing my, my first church or my home church. It was a good church, and the people were good at witnessing in their families and in their workplaces, and souls were getting saved little by little, and uh, people were getting touched. But as far as an evangelistic program where people in the church were really going out and doing something, at the time I was there anyway, there wasn't a lot going on. And I went to another church in the same city, and they did have this program. And I went with them. And we went, like, straight to the pits of hell. We went to Bourbon Street, which is, like, it's a, it's a party place. All people go there to do is get drunk and party and have fun. And you see there during carnival, normal, middle-aged, middle-class women that are usually dignified taking their tops off and exposing themselves and shaking their breasts. And, I mean, when they get into the raucous revelry of that city, I've seen people transform. So there's actually a spirit of revelry there. And it's strong. It's evil. And that's where, that's where I cut my teeth in evangelism. Down there, of course, nobody's going to get saved down there. And if they, if they do anything with you, because they, they went there to sin. They're not like incidentally just hanging out. They went there to party, and you are the rain on their parade. But I tried, and a couple of drunk guys prayed with me. You know, I don't think they knew what they were doing, but made me feel good and gave me a little check on my card of achievements and could tell people, oh, he prayed to receive Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. He's got vomit drooling down his face. But it made me feel good because back then it was more about a system of credits and I can say I did this. It had a lot of pride mixed in it and I was not yet maturing to understand that lifestyles live before people are good. But I had to make a choice to put myself out there. But what it did was, and I remember when I was, one of the days I went out and I went past a laundry mat or a laundry facility where you go do your laundry and a woman was at the back of her car. She had a hamper of clothes she was putting in her trunk. And I walked up to her, like I say, with my little tie and my tie. Hi, do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, oh yeah, he loves me. She said, she said, I'm a prostitute. And I said, Jesus loves prostitutes. In fact, there's some in the Bible that he loved. Oh, really? Why would he love me? And I talked to her. And in about 10 minutes, she prayed to receive Jesus.
She was really touched. She cried there at the back of her car that Jesus would love her because I convinced her it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus loves you exactly where you are. It's why he sent me here today to find you putting clothes in the back of your car. And so by then my skills had increased enough that I knew how to say it nicely and I was growing. But I had to keep making decisions to exalt Jesus like that all the time. So I got better and better at it. And she came to church and, in fact, testified in front of everyone that this, this young boy here came out on the streets and, and he told me about Jesus and I accepted it. And, and everybody was like, wow, I can't believe that happened. And at that time, also, because there was no evangelistic program, I went to my pastor to complain about that. And I told him, you know, I went to such and such a church and they have an evangelism program. And why don't we have an evangelism program? And my poor pastor, he had a stack of correspondence that high on his desk, stressed out. He's got counseling all day, scheduling these people on the brink of suicide. You know, he's got five messages to preach that week. And I'm in there complaining because he doesn't have an evangelistic program. He just leaned back in his chair and looked at me. And he says, what are you doing? And then I got it right there in that moment. I said, well, I guess I'm doing an evangelistic program for the church. And he said, exactly. Get out. <laughs> he put me out of his office. And I did. I went out and I did it. And, and I started. But these were all decisions I had to make. And as I was telling, we were talking about it in the school. I do every, every year when I do the, um, the core. We're talking about evangelism in the, in the balanced life of a believer in Christ. We, there's really four things you need to keep balanced. The word of God prayer, evangelism, and fellowship, like the shape of the cross, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship, a relationship with God built upon the word in prayer and a relationship with people, fellowship in the church, but also evangelism to those that are lost. And if you keep those simple things balanced, you will have a very healthy spiritual life in Christ. Of course, you'll have to face difficulties and problems, but you have to make a decision to exalt Jesus like that. And that's what I think Jesus is showing us here. We make that decision. Number two, we accept that it means trouble to exalt you. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Now, they already planned on killing Jesus, uh, but he was hiding, and so they couldn't find him. And um, in fact, he even said, where I'm gone, you will not find me, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, where is he going to go? Is he going to go amongst the dispersion? He's going to go amongst the, the Gentiles? Or he was just being stealth. But so they already had a death sentence on him. But, but now because Lazarus is this icon of the power of the father manifested through Jesus, now they put a death sentence on Lazarus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So now, more than ever, there's a landslide of souls in Jerusalem, in the holy city, that are coming to Christ. They had already decided to kill him, but now they're going to see. Every time we choose to live for Jesus, and especially exalt him before men, we must realize that it will inevitably mean trouble for us. And that you can't think that you're going to do this. In fact, Jesus said that we need to count the cost. What man builds a tower that doesn't first sit down and consider does he have enough money to finish it? Otherwise, he begins, he doesn't have enough to finish it, and he's embarrassed. And that happens in some places. I've seen people do that. And recently I was on a golf course, and the guys in the golf team were talking about 
this house that had been under construction for uh, like two years, this fence he never built. And they were making fun of him. And I thought about that scripture. This guy obviously didn't have enough money to finish the construction on his house. And they were mocking him. I felt sorry for the guy. Maybe he got into the project and didn't. But Jesus said it that way. So it is for us that we know that if, if we are going to live a life for Christ, it's going to mean trouble. It's just part of the deal. But God doesn't see it like trouble. He sees it as blessings. He said whoever loses houses or lands or um, wives or children or you know anything for the gospel's sake and follows me, he will receive in this life many times over what he lost with persecutions. Jesus mentions persecutions like the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. It's a blessing. And if you understand why the Bible says to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials and difficulties because of the process that it works in you. And it brings glory to the Lord. So we usually find this out in the beginning of our experiences with Jesus. And statistically, we see more people do more soul winning, or at least the attempt to win souls in their first year of their experience in Christ than in the 10 years following. In other words, they win more souls too. But there was a price to pay for it. In other words, they told one or two people about Jesus and those people listened, but then they also told others that hated them, ridiculed them, rejected them, or may even physically hurt them, depending on the country you're in. And so as a result, uh, they were the stigma is formed and they don't want to continue to do it. But we should. And we have to understand there's going to be trouble. The question is, do you want to exalt Jesus or not? Do we want to lift him up in our lives or not? Uh, if we do, then let's be sober about this and understand there's going to be trouble. He cannot be lifted up without there being trouble. Let's just say, well, what if I live in a Christian nation where all the people are Christian? It'll still be trouble because the way that you're lifting him up is going to bother somebody that that's not the way they do it in their church. And there's still going to be persecution. Where do you think the persecution Jesus went through was coming from? The people of God. The actual Jewish community. There's always going to be trouble. Why? Because there is a deeper issue to the problem. The source of the trouble is instigated by Satan and his demons. So he's working to cause the forces, whether they realize it or not, he's manipulating them so that they will hurt you and stop you from bringing the good news of Jesus to people. Let's go to number three. We are called, and I see a calling this, we are called to exalt Jesus. This is the harmony of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain this story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. It says, And they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples. So as they approached Jerusalem, they came to that area, and Jesus sent two disciples. So in the start of our life with Jesus, uh, we live to observe and learn. In other words, in the first nine chapters, let's say, of Matthew, we find that the disciples did virtually nothing other than watch Jesus and follow him. And we need to be followers of Christ. That's why in the first nine chapters, the disciples were known as methetes or learners, students. But finally, in the first verse, of the 10th chapter of Matthew, it says that, and the names of the apostles, where these are the first time the word apostles, and apostle just means this, sent, because they were sent. So God's calling us to exalt Jesus. The call of God will always cause us to have, 
or feel a burden to lift Jesus up. Never to hide him, never not to proclaim him or declare him, but always it will be a burden for us in some way. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But number three, we're called. It's a calling. Now, some people do not feel the calling. In fact, for the first nine chapters of Matthew, Jesus was not expecting them to do anything, nor did he send them to do it. He was waiting for the right time. And I really don't know the time that every individual may be empowered and sent by Jesus. Because also when he sent them in Matthew chapter 10, he gave them power over unclean spirits and authority over all sickness and disease so that they could heal, they could do miracles. And not every believer is instantly walking in the power of the Holy Spirit to do miracles. It takes time. But it starts with a desire, like we saw first, that we understand it's our decision to exalt Jesus. Second, that we count the cost, and we know that there's going to be trouble. If I lift up Jesus in my life, I'm going to pay for this, but it's worth it. And if we're called to exalt Jesus, that means there'll come a time when Jesus is going to give you a job. And you will feel the burden that it's now time for you to tell someone somewhere. It may be very specific. And you may be worried because a lot of people do not approach the publication through their mouth of the gospel because they don't know how. How do you preach? In fact, I could challenge many believers and say, tell me, how do I get saved? Let's just role play. I'm lost. You're saved. I'm going to hell. I want to have a talk with you. Can you convince me? And then we start in that conversation. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you right now. Some of you are looking scared. But when I do that, I have found that many believers do not know what to say. And they, they are at a miss. They don't know how to express or say. Because once again, all that we're talking about is not something that you instantly learn by instinct. It's something learned. It's something that you observe and then uh, repeat. And they watched Jesus for all this time before the, finally the time came for them to be sent. And here they are continuing missions because once he started sending them, he kept sending them back to do more and more and more and more. The first sending for me was literally on the streets of New Orleans. It's the first place God sent me. And the more I did, the more he sent me. And I started going other. And that's what led to me going to the mission field. I was doing that on the streets before I ever knew I was going to be a missionary. I suspected I would go to the nations, but I didn't really have the call. I was, but I was already active trying to win souls because God's calling for the ministry of reconciliation was already on me. So we do this, and it's important. The disciples were sent just as you are sent. We go to number four. And we find the means to exalt Jesus. So our lives are a conveyance or a path through which the Father wants Jesus to be exalted. That's what this message is all about. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethlehem on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. So here we see in the Gospels, he's telling them to go to this village. He's giving them very specific instructions on how to go to the village. So the question that we have about living for Jesus is, how do I do this? Okay, I'm expected to exalt Jesus. I'm expected to do some type of ministry. How do I do that? Well, that depends upon you. 
Well, no one would have ever been able to dream up this plan of going to get a donkey and putting Jesus on its back. But I have found through the years that that is how rarely specific each step God has given me is. I, I never really have a clear strategy. But then God tells me to do a certain strange thing. One time I was driving over a mountain ridge in Acapulco, and we had been meeting inside our house and there was a limited amount of space, not to mention the fact that my house was smelling like feet because the little street kids would come in, many of them, and the bacteria on their feet somehow would go into our carpet. And, you know, that's okay. I'm willing to deal with that. But I started thinking we need to start – we need to have like a church place where we can make this happen because there was no longer any room. And it's hot there too. It's already 40-plus degrees there sometimes. I mean super hot which is, you know, Fahrenheit, that's like 110, 150. It can get up super hot with high humidity. And we cram all the people in the house. It was miserable. And I knew it was time for the next level. And I wanted to be able to exalt Jesus and to lift up Jesus or exalt Jesus in that community where I was living. And El Coloso, it was something I couldn't figure out how to do. But the Lord showed me how in a vision. As I was driving over that mountain, in a flash, I saw a tent. And that tent had arches under that were supporting tarps, and they were chairs underneath and keyboard. It was like a tent church, but it was shaped like a church, long rectangular rows of chairs. I saw it so clearly that the vision was given to me, and I knew that it was God telling me exactly what I needed to do. In other words, a mechanism or a physical tool that could be used to exalt Jesus in that community. And really what confirmed to me that it was God is when I started building this tent that I envisioned. First of all, I went home that day. I immediately got some coat hanger and cut three pieces of it and bent it in the shape of the arch that I saw. And I got some pieces of material and some strings. I built a model of what I saw. Just like a legend. Ever see like these little models of the tabernacle or something people will build and they're kind of cool. I built that from my church tent and I looked at it and I said this is what I have to build and then I, I, I got some wood and built these arches that folded on themselves because our house was very tiny and to keep those the arch was it was as high as the ceiling here when I would make them so they would be about from the curtain to me and about as high as the ceiling I had three of these arches so to make them I had to use four pieces of wood that folded on themselves so when the arch was folded up, it was I could put it under one arm and carry it and put it in storage. So I had three of them. But when it opened up, it locked into position. It was very strong. And even the way that I did the hinge, I saw in the vision. And the hinge was very specific, the way that it locked into place. It was all made of wood with bolts. And um, somebody actually, an engineer actually came and saw the structure and was looking at it and said, where did you learn how to do this kind of a joint that, that seals like this? When you, I said, I saw it in a vision. He says, it's actually really clever. And he was an engineer. So I knew, I'm not an engineer. I spent three years in eighth grade, dropped out in ninth. I was a drug dealer and a thief. I, I didn't know anything. It was what I saw, though. And the specificity 
that God will give you. He will say, go to a village and you'll find a donkey tied up there. And when he's telling you this, you really don't get the whole picture. He didn't tell him at this moment, you know, when you get this donkey, you see the reason we're getting it is because it's a symbol of the fact that I'm coming in peace. And when I sit on the back of a donkey, you're going to see we're going to, no, he, it was incrementally revealed to them as it was happening. But Jesus had to plan all along. This is what I find about the things that will exalt Jesus in our life are plans that the Father has yet to be revealed to us, but he reveals them step by step. And if we're obedient one step, he brings us to the next and to the next and to the next. You don't need to know everything to obey God's plan. Just obey the today, the now. The sim- what is the mechanism or the tool that the Father can reveal to you so that you can exalt Jesus. You find yourself in a community. You find yourself living on planet Earth. You have people all around you that you know are going to hell. Is it your responsibility to help them? Of course it is. Because you love them like we do. We love our families. We love our friends. We love these people. But it's not always easy, is it, to just approach them all Jesus-y and tell them about the gospel. And in fact, we feel in our heart of hearts that if we just do that abruptly and rashly, it may actually not be a good idea. So we have this churning desire for wisdom on how to do it. This is where I'm telling you, if you seek God, he will give you the mechanism through which it can be done. And that tent actually was very successful. And the devil hated that tent. In fact, the devil hated it so much, he sent a demon-possessed man when I was building it to threaten my life. He said he would kill me and that if I raised that tent up in that area, he would tear it down. And uh, it, was a long, it was the same one that hit his chest and said, and, which is the name of the god of the Aztecs because it was channeling through this man. The demon of that whole region manifested through this guy and talked to me, person, which made me feel really good about myself, that I was important enough that the god of the Aztecs the demon spirit of hundreds and thousands of years before would come through this guy to threaten me. I really thought I was getting something, you know, finally getting somewhere. This is the first time a God ever came to threaten me. And I was scared to death of this guy and I was not going to say a thing. But as he walked away, the spirit of the Lord made me stand and pointed him and say, if you raise your hand against God's work, God will raise his hand against you. And I was thinking, shut up, Stephen. Why are you doing that? Because this guy was furious, mad, mad guy. And he turned red and ran off. The spirit in him ran off. And he never did kill me, obviously. I'm still here. And we put the tent up, and it became an icon. It became Jesus lifted up, and it drew many people to it. They, they, it was orange. And the worst part is I couldn't get tarps that were a decent color. So the tarps I got were this fluorescent orange. It was the loudest orange because they were rubberized tarps that truckers used to cover their goods in these big trucks. In fact, when I found the two tarps that I wanted, these are heavy-duty tarps. They were costly. I didn't have enough money. And um, the guy that was the trucker that I did the deal with, he agreed to take my video cassette recorder and um, some other goods I had. And I had to sacrifice to get these things. I didn't have enough money. So I had to, you know, you're, you know it's serious when I give away my VCR, my video cassette recorder. That was like, you know, of course, today we don't need all that. But 
That was the only thing I could use to watch TV at night and see like my videotapes of my TV programs from the U.S. And that's soothing when you're living in a foreign country. And, I, and God made me lay that down on the altar. But I got these tarps and I put them on there and everybody made fun of the, the people in the orange tarp. It's the orange, the, the carpa, they called it, which is Spanish for tarp. They said the people in the carpa, they'd make fun of it. And they called this the hallelujahs and this and that. But everybody knew where it was. I was the topic of conversation in the Catholic Church by the priest almost every Sunday. In fact, they told me, people in the Catholic Church would come back and tell me, you know, the priest was talking about you again. So what did he say? He was telling everybody, whatever you do, don't go up there to that orange tarp. Stay away from that man. He's, he, he's the devil, and he's coming to pervert our ways and our culture. And the people who told me this were in the meeting and told not to come. You know where they told me? Under the orange tarp. It's like exactly what he, they were being told. They went because they figured, well, what's, oh, i got to go check this place out. And so many people got saved in those days and healed and touched. But it's funny because God gave me that exact mechanism. And you never know what the mechanism is going to be. Another tool that God gave us to exalt Jesus was kitchens. And we did these kitchens with free food in them, but we didn't say free food. We opened up these little restaurants. We had three of them simultaneously operating at one time in that community. And how we did this, because now my next question is to exalt Jesus and interact with people in community. Some would come to the orange tent, but most would not. It's like this building is not filled with people right now in this room because you can invite them to your blue in the face, and we all do, but people just don't like to come to church. So how do we find the line to cross? I've tried many different ways. I'm still looking for exactly the way to make the connect and do the things because it's not, it's sometimes the, the, the purposes of God are elusive. Also, we're, wait, we're in a waiting culture. By the way, the Bible is a waiting culture. Everybody had to wait. Moses, uh, Joseph, David, Anointed, but not instantly king. It took a long time. Everybody's waiting. Noah was told to build the ark, and it was going to rain. He had to wait while he was going to, at least he had something to do while he was waiting. But I can go down to Joseph and his fulfillment of the dreams he had. Such a long wait. The disciples in the upper room, 10 days waiting. I mean, God's really into making us wait. And when we seek the purposes of God, often you will be put in a position that you may have an idea, but it's not clear. But don't give up. Don't give up. God is going to give you a secret. He's going to give you a key. And that one thing is going to make a huge difference in the people around you. It might be through your business. It might be through um, a, some type of social gathering. It might be through uh, an art class. It might be through an acting class. It might be through music or language or anything. It could be anything. In fact, you may already have the tools in your possession, but have not yet understood that God can use those parts of your life for you to exalt Jesus. And they may be the very thing that he will do for many souls to come. Because that is your inheritance. So what about your life can be a tool to lift up Jesus? We need to find it. But if, you, if, you, if you're obedient to Jesus and you're following him, the time will come that he's going to tell you, okay, go get this donkey. Now, they go and do that. and We know that there's some problems with them getting the donkey. And he says, if they tell you that 
um, that you can't take the donkey. Don't worry about it. But now we go to number, this is number five is what we're looking for. All bow to the moment of exaltation of Jesus. And in fact, everything bows to this moment. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Mark, it says, similar, brought the cold Jesus where their cloaks were over it. He sat on it. See, there's so many elements. Many people spread their cloaks on the road. And they were taking the branches out of the trees. In this, we see everybody doing things and laying everything down for this moment. Actually, what's about to happen, I refer to as the Hosanna moment. And if you want to talk about Hosanna moments, talk to people like Reinhard Bunke that would spend a million dollars on one church service or one crusade. That's a lot of money. And I remember years ago watching a friend that I knew actually wrote the check for him to be able to do one of those crusades. I, a man, that, a personal friend of mine wrote a $1 million check and gave it to his ministry. But as a result, hundreds of thousands of souls got saved. But you know what, what they had left after that event was over? A field full of trash. I mean, it was a huge investment and then gone. And you start thinking, wow, the gospel and the work of the gospel is like a money pit. If you, if you, when you invest into it and pay for it, it just, it's taking. But the price to exalt Jesus, anything is worth it. It's worth it. No matter what we have to do, no matter what price we have to pay, no matter what sacrifices, if Jesus can be lifted up in a given moment in time. I had a Hosanna moment in, in Mexico, and that was when that disaster came. And I was there to feed the people and help the people and love them. And it's a long story, but it culminated in me standing before military leaders of the whole nation, colonels and generals, and having one of them say in front of all these military leaders of the nation, these are like kings, say, Stephen, all during this disaster, you've always had a smile on your face. What was your motivation through this all? And see there, now some people might pull away from that moment, but that was obviously my Hosanna moment. And I stood in front of them all and declared, the reason that I smile, I have one motivation, one mo motivation only, and his name is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ saved me from my sins, and I shared the gospel with all of them. And because I'd done so much to help the community, they all listened and applauded and said thank you, and they were happy. Those moments are very rare, and they're, they have, but they can change everything. And that's exactly why Jesus is willing to throw everything away and put all his chips on the table in this poker match and just take a gamble. And he loses that gamble because he's crucified as a result. Uh, Lazarus and this moment is why absolutely they had to kill Jesus. And Jesus knew that. Everything should bow to the moment of the exaltation of Jesus. So once we find that path, once we find that tool, that mechanism, even if it's something strange like a donkey, uh, we will be required to lay everything down as a platform to carry Jesus. Our very existence, our identities, think about they put their garments. You are identified by your clothing, especially in Jewish culture. 
wherever you were, you could tell. I could walk up to anybody in that culture and tell you what you were, what your profession was, because bakers looked a certain way. We have it somewhat here. You can usually tell a doctor or a nurse they have scrubs on, or or you can tell a baker or whatever, a waiter or a chef will wear a certain, a certain thing. Well, that's exactly what the Jews did. Almost all of them had cloaks and, and garments that matched their identity. And they took those things off and used them. In other words, they laid down their identity to exalt Jesus. That's what we do. We lay everything down. And sometimes we have to be defamed and seen as less to do that. Sometimes it requires that we lose face and that we have our pride torn down to exalt Jesus. Now, it's not just simply lifting up Jesus. We're going to have to say something, and that's number six, declaration of the exalted Christ. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. Now, the way picture Jesus on the donkey. Now, you know the inference of the donkey versus a stallion. It was a symbol between nations that if a king went to another nation, riding on the donkey, he came in terms of peace. In other words, he was not looking for battle. He was looking to have peaceful relationships. It was just a symbol. But if he came on a stallion, he came in war to fight. That's why Jesus first came on a stallion, but I mean on a on donkey, but how is he coming back? When he comes, he's coming on a, on a stallion because his return is for war. I don't think we're going to meet a peaceful Jesus when he returns. He's coming furious. His eyes are like fire. He's coming to with a rod of iron, it says, to judge the nations. Boy, you want to be on the right side of that war. And I'm glad. If your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're following him. And if it's not, you're in front of him and he's coming after you. So make sure that you know Jesus and your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. But these people were following and before they were surrounding Jesus, celebrating this moment, saying, Hosanna. And actually, this is a cry for salvation because Hosanna means, oh, save us. And where it says, son of David or Hosanna in the highest, it says in, in um, one place, when they say in the highest, it means in the, in the highest place. In other words, from your eternal position, save us. So they're crying out for salvation. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This calling the son of David was to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. So all these people are getting saved. The whole city is getting saved. And Jesus is coming and everyone's exalting Jesus. And it requires that they declare the exaltation of Jesus. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, it says, very interestingly. Then we see this, this next scripture. It goes on to say in John chapter uh, 12 and also Matthew 21. We start with Matthew. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had, been, that they had done these things to him. 
In other words, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, the messianic prophecies that involved a donkey, all these things. In other words, there's a plan that God knows and you don't. And they didn't know about it. Later on, they figured it out. There's so many things I've done for God in the call of, of God on my life to exalt Jesus. So many things I've done, I've not understood at all until after. But we just obey. Just do what God tells you to do. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So we have all of this, the, the exaltation, but we have to speak. Now we're going to come to the final one, number seven. We live this exaltation. It should be, your life should be lived exalting him. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, Rebuke, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So here the religious people are trying to calm them down. No one's going to want you to exalt Jesus. And if you do exalt them, they're going to tell you to stop it. The disciples went through this after Jesus uh, rose and ascended into heaven. They went, they waited for the promise of the Father. They got the power of the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They went out and preached the gospel. And as they preached it, they told them, shut up. In fact, they took them, beat them, and said, never speak in this name again. And their reasoning with them is, is it better to obey man or obey God? But they had to obey God. They continued to preach the gospel and preach the gospel. But every time they did, they got in trouble. Look at the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went, everywhere he lifted up Jesus, he was threatened and driven out and always on the run. And that's the life that we live when we exalt Jesus. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. But I would sure hope that our life lived exalting Jesus would cause the whole world to follow after Jesus. And that's what really we're looking for. My dream is that one day my ministry, and I, actually my ministry is not going to change. And what I mean by my ministry is what I say. But God is going to put me in a position where everybody wants to hear it. I have a friend, a mentor of mine. Uh, her name is Ruth Ann Martinez. She travels around the world, preaching, teaching, massive crowds, amazing uh, winning of souls. And she's an older woman, and she I spent a lot of time. She actually taught me a lot about the Spirit of God and the anointing. And she's the daughter of Danny Ost. She's Mexican, married a Mexican national, and uh, they, are, they run Calvary Ministerial Institute, which is a Bible school that has produced thousands of pastors and leaders. And they are apostolically over... I think it's 14 or something churches in that one city, plus there's hundreds of churches across the nation. Real powerful woman of God. She told me one time that, she said, it's so funny, because uh, by then she was old, she's so funny that I have been preaching the same thing my whole life. But only now, because I'm a grandmother, everybody wants to hear it. So the message doesn't change. Uh, you preach what God gave you and just keep preaching it. And eventually, God is going to put you in a place where it's going to bear fruit. But don't stop. The same thing we hear about Catherine Coleman. Catherine Coleman said that her message never changed. She always preached the same thing. And she argued with God one time, why are you giving me all these souls? Why didn't you give this to me when I was younger? And he said, you wouldn't have been able to handle it then. But her message was the same. She just faithfully preached. 
If God gives you a message, if you speak that message, just keep preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. The day will come, the time will come, and let's just say it doesn't. And you die your whole life, like it says about the Hall of Fame of Faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, these died having never seen fulfilled the things they were hoping for. But you die in faith. And you die in hope. And that gets God's attention. And your credit that is given to you in eternity has nothing to do with the amount of people that obey your message. It has everything to do with how much you try. So just keep trying and God will give you. We need to exalt Jesus. Our life will exalt Jesus and bring glory to the Father in heaven. And we should always be seeking to do so. Seven stages we saw. Number one, we decide to exalt Jesus. Number two, we accept that it means trouble to exalt Jesus. Uh, number three, we're called to exalt Jesus. Number four, we find the means to exalt Jesus. Number five, all bow to the moment of exaltation of Jesus. Number six, declaration of the exalted Christ. It requires words. And seven, we live the exaltation of Christ. We're going to lift him up. We're going to exalt him to the highest place. And I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to do so. And I will always, as a, as a leader in this church and in this ministry, I will always recommend that you keep exalting, keep lifting Jesus. But uh, be prepared for the hardships of it. But know that if you do, there's a great reward in heaven and God is going to bless you. Amen.